Welcome to the Creative Land Podcast Network. Join us as we share our favorite RPGs, one-shot games, tabletop games, reviews of items, and convention panels, and other exciting things that we run into from time to time. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, a sign to Ragnarok story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the 5th Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Starting with Miss Gail Carragher. Hi, everyone. I'm Gail Carragher. I write uh, steampunk, <laughs> young adult, and science fiction and romance. Um, I'm, I am pretty much 50-50 traditionally published and self-published. Um, well, that's not what my income stream is these days. But I'm happy to talk about any nitty-gritty things to do with publishing with the publishing industry. I will answer honestly any questions that you have, although I will categorically deny it later on the internet. So, just be aware of that. I'm Ashley Moore. I'm an artist and illustrator, and I also do gallery shows, and I am a straight artist. I do piano work. I paint pianos. Um, anything tinkering, that is what I love. So, you can ask me all those kinds of questions. Um, I'm April Lipike. I'm also an author. I write in adult fantasy, and uh, occasionally delve out of that. Um, in particular, Ashley and I are here promoting this book, uh, which we worked on for about eight years. Um, and it's gorgeous. And actually, business-wise, it's interesting because we shopped it around New York, and they did not know what to do with it because it was too long to be a children's book and too short to be a graphic novel. And they just... One of the lovely things about the self-publishing stream is that you can put out weird things. I know nobody in here likes anything weird, <laughs> but some people do. Use your imagination. Um, but like, you can get out of what's traditional and normal and and sort of the ideal marketing industry standard um, and, and get it out there. I think this is fantastic and amazing and beautiful, and mostly because she's got such an amazing art in there. Um, I also write novels, and um, it's interesting that you, you mentioned the split because, uh, let's see, I, I, a year ago I had 12 traditionally published novels and two self-published novels, and I have since met thresholds and been a little pushy and pulled so many of my rights back, and so now I have four traditionally published novels and all of the rest are out under my packaging umbrella, which is the company that put out this book. So yeah, things are changing. And clearly, we have all done it. So yeah, we have all done some of, some so of everything. Let's talk about that change. So what was the uh, industry like when you first started versus where we're at now? So what, you know, we don't have to get into details because I know you can talk exponentially about <laughs> the, the ins and outs of it. But in terms of business, so we are all published authors or artists in some manner. Have things changed today? versus when you first started. What are those channels like and how difficult is it for any of these aspiring 
wanting to be published to get into the business? Oh my God, would you like to start? <laughs> sure. Okay, so I, I, I may be longer published than you. When did your first book come out? 2009, but I started oh, submitting in 2000. It got picked up in 2008. Okay, so mine was picked up in 2007, but we're just about twins here. Yeah. When I so started, about the beginning. Yeah, 99% of the stuff that was self-published out there was terrible. I or, mean, it, or it had the reputation for being it. It was really yes. a dirty word when we started. Yes. Like, real self-publishing was dirty. And, and it was often earned. There were a lot it was of often vanity earned. presses that were yes. paid to play. Like, that were taking, that were ruthlessly taking advantage of Ruthlessly. Us. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then also, when I started, about 5% of my sales were ebooks. So I this, mean, it was tiny. It was just when ebooks were starting. This is interesting because when I started, the big deal with Solus was that it had higher sales in ebooks than any other book Orbit had ever published. Mm -hmm. Now, Orbit was a relatively new publishing house in the United States, but they had an established track record in Europe. And so yeah, I had 25% ebook sales, and they'd never seen anything like wow. it in 2008. It was insane. They were like, we don't know what's going on with your book. And I was like, I know what's going on with my book. The romance readers are reading it. And it was an adult. It's an adult okay. book. Yeah. Why it was slower to pick up Way slower. Sales. Yes. Way slower. So it was, frankly, um, science fiction and fantasy was really slower. It was, it was the romance readers. It was, it was all romance and erotica at the beginning who really like focused on self-publishing picked it up and it was the readers who were really re willing to embrace it. Mm -hmm. So if you crossed into that genre, you got in early with that reader base. And it was the readers, I think, that, that raised the level of quality in self-publishing. Expectations as yes. well. Yeah, they started yeah. leaving bad reviews if it wasn't mm -hmm. edited properly and yeah. But also simultaneously then you started to get vendors embracing self-published books, or at least allowing for them to be distributed. So and that had been a huge barrier. Exactly. In the early days of self-publishing, you had to code it yourself. You used Calibri and Sigil. Like, it was complicated. There wasn't any kind of cottage industry for cover art. It was never in a So you had to be all in one. Yeah, you had to really figure it all out from the ground up. And those of us who did it super early on, and I just did, I just did tiny forays in order to mostly just to own my SEO on these platforms, um, I just did short stories first. So they're talking about managing their online presence as well. So not just SEO is like kind of the online world of search engine optimization. Search engine optimization. So there's all of these things that these brilliant women yeah, have to do themselves. You, and people talk about search engine optimization mostly in terms of like Google and your website and stuff like that. But when you are publishing, and I encourage anybody, no matter whether you want to go traditionally published or self-published, to jump on and get your and own your identity in those ven in vendors immediately. So Orbit, my traditional publisher, published my first book series successfully, uh, but I always owned my Amazon Central account. I didn't let them have that. Like I jumped on and created the Gail Carragher Amazon Central. I claimed my books that they had published. So like, and I encourage everybody to do that. To like at least have an Amazon Central. Um, and own that yourself because you may want, even if you don't think you want to self-publish now, you may want to in the future or you may get your rights reverted to you and that's the only way to get the third book in a series out or something like that. So, And it's not difficult. You just have to not. prove that you're you. Yeah. Um, I believe they sent an email to my editor and she confirmed <laughs> yeah, something like this you. email address is my author. So you're, you're not robots. This perfection no. is not robotic. I was early enough in that they were like, sure, like who would claim to be a random student? <laughs> <laughs> and now you're like many people 
So <laughs> do you feel like you guys face any just complications, difficulties because of the genre that you prefer to exist in? Because you were talking about how you your stuff started picking up because of romance and all of this stuff. Was there anything inside of you that was like, well, I'm steampunk, like where are those readers? Like that's my target market. Market Is, is it difficult for you guys to be in this business? You know, this is about the truth here, so. Why don't you start in this one? It's, it's <laughs> the art steampunk crossover. Yeah, so for me, you know, I, I have multiple sides of myself. I have an abstract artist side, and then I have my steampunk side, and then I have my children's book side, that sometimes all those merge into one, but other times it's very much separate. So when I have the opportunity to work with a very talented author, then I jump on that and kind of ride her tails. <laughs> <laughs> For me, you know, it opened up new opportunities and doors, and so it was a great chance to try something new, even though that's a big part of who I am. So I think for myself, having that niche market was a great thing in the moment. Um, I was always more into just straight historical. Um, I didn't really understand until at least 10 years ago what steampunk was. Um, actually, my husband was more into steampunk, and he was like, you know, you love all of the like old-timey clothes and stuff. You really should just push it one step further. Um, so I've always loved like historical romance. That's how I found you. Um, and I was like, oh, look, there's, there's other things in here. <laughs> there's turtles. What's going on? Um, so... You know, for me, I really embrace the Venn diagram, so to speak. I feel like, you know, steampunk is in the middle, but there's a ton of romance and historical and fantasy. Um, and I don't mind either being shoehorned into the middle or spread out into the outside. I think it's a really delightful audience to write for because um, nobody is rigid. You know, everybody's like, you have a good story. It's got at least some elements that I like. I'll try it. You know? So it hasn't been difficult for me. From, from a pure, like, I'm going to be brutally honest, I said I would be, uh, but from a purely marketing demographic, you guys don't count. Sorry. There aren't enough yep. steampunkers. So you can't uh, just you can't have a profit model where if you'd like to transition to being a full-time steampunk author and that's how you make most of your money, that only targets the steampunk community. Yep. Um, it won't be supported as a, as a writer, not even if you're like a very prolific self-publisher. Now there are some like micro exceptions if you're uh, gunning for self-publishing, KU, which is Amazon's exclusive, and you can write very, very quickly, and by that I mean one book a month, you could probably do a steampunk like lit RPG or reverse harem or something like that, or find what the next big bandwagon is. But that's a very specific kind of writer who's a very specific avenue, and your entire income stream would be Amazon dependent, which I urge against. Uh, but there are there are some exceptions. Um, but those are reader bases that are not primarily steampunk readers. They're readers of other trends. Um, How do you merge that into other demographics? Well, that's the yeah. key. That, so the key is to pick your lane, your bigger lane. I would say, and then and then go so go into YA fantasy with a steampunk edge, or go into comedic comedies of manners, which is basically what I write with, with steam that is steam. I like describe myself as accidentally steampunk. I just sort of ended up writing it and I was like, oh what's this thing? Oh uh ooh, there's a hole. She was brilliant enough. Well, there's the whole costuming thing that goes with it. This is awesome. Um 
So yeah, that is the way to do it, is to take the thing you love and then write uh, write in a genre. And, and I would say, especially if you're trying to do something like my career model, series are uh, the better option, at least to start. So uh, think in terms of three <coughs> to five book series, that kind of thing. Um, that's just generally what science fiction and fantasy readers enjoy and gravitate towards. Um, and so uh, you can get launched into a career easier that way. So I have a question, kind of for all three of you, but I want to know what you guys think the differences are between being a published artist and a published writer. And I want to see kind of where those lines blur me, because some people might do both, right? So I want to start with you. So how, how does that work? How, how do you become a brilliant artist? And then you're like, cool, I have all of this. What do you do with it? What's the next step? Tell us. So I think it depends on you know your goals, your overall goals. So do you want to only do that? Do you want a revenue stream that comes from gallery work? And if you're going to sell in galleries, that's going to be vastly different than publishing. I mean, you're talking framing, you're talking print, you're talking all kinds of things. So knowing those markets can, can present multiple challenges. So once you kind of get that mind frame and set on what you want to do with it, then accomplish that task first. And then I would say, then branch out, look at other opportunities. Because as an artist, you're going to need multiple streams if you're going to want to do that professionally. I mean, you might find it in one thing, but it's going to take a lot of work. And a lot of the time, it might last for a year and then suddenly that funding was cut for X project and you're on to something new. So I think that's not dissimilar mm -hmm. to writing um, and the industry of how that goes, but just what I'm getting is like know where you kind of want to go with it. Absolutely. Smart goals. Yeah. If anybody wants to look it up, I recommend that you not start any venture without a smart goal. And I know that's business speak, but S-M-A-R-T goals. We are in a business panel now. I know, I know. <laughs> um, so I think that it's harder actually to be a, a, a revenue-producing published artist. I, I would, and I think yeah. that you are much more vulnerable. I think it takes more more practice, and you're much more vulnerable to theft and expectation of free work. Um, Ashley Ashley was my daughter's uh, art teacher when she was eight, and she's now in art school in Minneapolis. And the big thing that just drives her bonkers is that in order to get attention, you have to be showing your art. As soon as you show your art, anyone can hit copy paste. Mm -hmm. um, and she, she will go off on long rants about NFTs. <laughs> and so uh, but uh, crowd here. That's all I know. Non-fungible tokens. Yes. That's literally all I know. It's it's where you own <laughs> kind of someone else's work that you didn't make. It's and I know it's way more complicated than that, <laughs> but that's all I know. Um, but uh, you know, I, I obviously the experience that I have is my daughter who started drawing as soon as she could hold a pencil. We put her in lessons when she was eight. She started taking college comics classes when she was thirteen, and now she is working on a bachelor's degree in comic art, which didn't even exist when I was in college. <laughs> um, but she put more practice into her craft for twelve years than I put into writing at all during that time. Um, I, I was always making up stories. I was always exercising my creativity, which I think is its own sort of weightlifting. 
Um, but there is so much practice and so much technology these days with digital art that goes into art. And so I actually think that if you're going to be an artist, expect to work harder than if you're going to be a writer. Um, there are, I mean, there, there are, are there is cover art to consider. There um, is. That is That's actually true. a very lucrative side hustle for a certain for some artists. Mm -hmm. um, a, a good digital or a good a good hand drawn like cover art piece is expensive. I pay about four hundred and fifty bucks for my render covers, which is a lot of money. But my cover. Have you search for some something like that? Uh, author groups is general yeah. recommendation or author groups or whatever. Like you can come up to me and I'll be like. Sleepy Fox Studios, who I use, but you know you're going to be waiting for months. <laughs> she is one of the best, and the good ones are in demand. And the good ones yes. are in demand. So as an artist, you can target. You can you can use that side hustle revenue to do to finance your other needs or requirements or whatever. There's if you can do cartoon work. There's a huge trend in cover art right now in cartoons. Um, I recommend if you are an artist who is interested in this angle that you actually check out my. The, the new designer I'm currently working with, the name of the the site is Sleepy Fox Studios. Keeley, K-E-L-L-E-Y, is the person who mostly does the work. But what you should do is look at her pre-made sample gallery, because what that showed to me is how very savvy she was about what was trending in the industry right now, and that was why I signed with her. And you can look at that gallery and see what's trending in the different genres. Um, and that is like, that's golden because it showed me that she knew what the trends were. And that is the thing that you will need to do if you go into cover art design. Yeah, you need to know what's trending. Yeah. yeah, that's industry uh, That's research. industry insider knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that's a complete aside, though. But I agree. And one of the things we're alluding to but not explicitly talking about when we're talking about the difference between writer and artist is artists mostly have to at least have some luxury scarcity model, which is to say they have super products, very high-end expensive things in time and money to create that go for galleries, that sell at a high price point at a convention like this or what have you. Authors mostly don't, like Brandon Sanderson accepted. Um, most of us do, will do some of us, I do a luxury scarcity occasionally, but I work with a small press that does these beautiful like leather bound and cloth bound short run editions, it's called Subterranean, and they'll do like 700 to 1,000 print runs, and that's it. If you don't buy it, you're never gonna get that book again. Um, but there are very few authors who do that or have the fan base to support it. Steampunk is one of those that might, because steampunkers like pretty like objects. Yes. Um, but you have to have retained you know, your hardcover rights and things like that. But um, all that to say, but those books are only like 50 to maybe 200 bucks for the super luxury editions. That's, that is the luxury version that authors do. Occasionally, you know, like box, collective box, collector boxes or something like that. But we don't do this really high-end stuff that artists do. So from a business perspective, that's one of the major differences between the two. Yeah, authors mostly just have hardcovers and paperbacks. Exactly. That's, that's the range Digital there. and audio. Yes. 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 And you can do the luxury version of audio with this full cast audio, that kind of thing. So I think I missed an opportunity here right in the beginning, but how did you get into business? How did you decide, I enjoy being a artist, I enjoy being a writer? How, how did you, what inspiration did you, I know it's hard, I usually ask this question right in the beginning to make you sweat, but how did that transition go or look like from, 
I'm Gail. I'm, I will enjoy writing. Now I'm going to do something with my work. How did that happen for you guys? Because some of these people here, they might just be here because they want to hear you talk, but some might be in that position where they enjoy writing or drawing. Can I ask a question of the audience? How many of you in here would like to be writers, either as hobbyists or published or whatever? And artists at the same ilk? And how many are just here because you're interested in hearing us talk? Okay. So about 50-50. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay. I started the last hard question with you. Uh, well, this one, I mean, you can be as lighthearted as you want, but I, are, are any of you guys curious how they got started? I guess we could ask, or do we want to move on to something else? I can go fast. I fell into an ass backwards. I was a practicing archaeologist, and but I've always written. How did I not know this? Uh, <laughs> um, I've always written, uh, and it was just a side hobby. I grew up in kind of an artist commune, awkward sort of environment where uh, all the artists were poor and starving. And I was like, well, that's a terrible idea. My business plan is academia. Uh, so that makes perfect sense. All idea. the money is in being an archaeologist. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, uh, but I always wrote, and I figured if I write it, I might as well try to publish it. Um, yeah. And then Solace was sort of a challenge to myself. Because I was like, I like this urban fantasy thing, but it's never funny enough for me. I like this historical stuff, but I, you know, I want to muck about with history and objects because I'm an archaeologist. Uh, so I wrote Solus as a challenge, and it's a six-month challenge to myself. And I wasn't allowed to tinker with it; I had to send it out. Um, and then it was sort of a slow burn, hot seller. And then Changeless hit the New York Times. And once Changeless hit the New York Times, everybody was like, "You have to change your oh, no. how you do stuff." We're gonna follow up on that with you two here after this. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that changed everything, um, and that was when I I was working on my like two years out from my end of my PhD at the time, and uh, basically I was doing too much work. I was like typing too much all day on a thesis, and then all evening on a book, and uh, eventually it just became you have to pick. So it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Towards the business end of it, I, I am an archaeologist by training, which means, and I'm a science archaeologist, I have an MS, so uh, as part of my many ridiculous degrees, um, which means that I have a very scientific mindset. I like statistics, I like spreadsheets, I like data manipulation, I like big data, I like metadata, I like figuring out what works and what doesn't work. It makes me very weird in the world of artists. That explains so much about your own style of writing, though. It does. I work leads in outlines. I'm very, like, very organized about everything. It makes me extremely suited to being a creative business person, which I recognize is an aberrant personality type, uh, but makes me very excited to talk about uh, data all the time. Um, and I have color-coded spreadsheets for everything. It makes me very happy. Uh, I guess for myself, I started doing like booths and conventions for crafts and art when I was nine years old, I think was my first one. Wow. And I was sculpting at the time and selling pins. Um, and I've always had that kind of passion for making, but it wasn't until later on that I was like, I really want to illustrate. And it was, it's been a slow, long process. Um, I've had multiple things in my life. I mean, we're all human. We have things that come up and set us back. Uh, actually, this book right here, my husband was in a horrific accident. And so that was my life for a long time, was taking care of him. And so my art career suddenly was like, oh, you actually don't have the possibility to have health insurance. So I ditched the art and 
did something else, uh, medical field, so that I could be able to help support him because art wasn't a steady stream that I had the time to go to. So that's, you know, how it's been is a little one step forward, two steps back, and it's a process. And I'm still in the middle of it, if we're being honest. And so I think that's the thing is different stages at different times and you find yourself where you're at and just not giving up on that dream. I think that's what happens with a lot of people. I think there's a quote that every child is an artist and then they grow up and someone tells them like, you're not good enough. And they give it up. And so I think that's the thing, just not letting that passion go for what you really love. Keep trying, it doesn't matter where you're at in your life. If you have that desire, the only one stopping you is, is you. Especially within the world of self-publishing now and Instagram and all these social media things, there's a way if you want it bad enough. And know what you want from it. Like yes. give yourself the grace to be like, right now at this point in my life, you know, I need health insurance, whatever it is. Like so I can't do a, like three books a year. I can only maybe do one book every two years or something like that. And that's fine. That is not failure. Exactly. That's just the place you are right now. Is, is also dictates how much of any of these things you can be. So I got started when I found out that it was possible, um, which was not until I was uh, 22. Um, by this time, I had a degree in, in creative writing. I, um, you know, and you would think that I would recognize at that point that it is possible to have a career being a novelist, but I had never met anyone who ever did it. My college professor had a published book, but she was also a college professor. Um, and then, that, sorry, but isn't that amazing when you meet somebody like your favorite author or just another a person you know who's like published something and you're like, wait, an actual human it's writes the books. <laughs> like, oh my I grew, God. I grew up, I read everything and authors were like really amazing rock stars who were so, a step above human and they certainly weren't me, you know. So then um, I was living with my mother-in-law as we were getting ready to go to law school with my husband. And uh, she said, you, you know, I host this book club at my house. You should really come. It's just down the hall. You have no excuses. There's a girl in our group who's having a book published in three months. Her name is Stephanie Meyer. You should come meet her. <laughs> and it feels really weird, but she was the first person I met who made me understand that a regular person who is very much like me, we were both stay-at-home moms with young children running around, kind of wishing we could do something extra with our brain because it's, a lot of work and not a lot of thinking taking care of toddlers um, <laughs> who are wonderful fabulous not one regret in that arena but it did not use my brain very much um, and so once it became possible um, then I started pursuing it and uh, you know it took me three and a half books and even after I got an agent I had a book that went out on submission and just crashed the fail bus I had to still write another one for her also all of this is normal this is totally a normal process for for most novelists um, it sounds like you hit it out of the park your first time no but, I have uh, a trunk full of books that oh, I rejected just excellent. like everybody <laughs> we all feel good now yeah everybody like Read Solace is like, oh my god. And I was like, no, like seriously, it's just there's ten of them that I look at now and I'm like, oh, that's oh, I'm glad no one took that one. Yeah. So I'm like on a mission now to just make sure people um, understand that this is within the realm of possibility. And it must have worked because my husband went to law school, graduated, took a couple of years off, and decided to go back into academia, which is what he loves. Mm -hmm. But it's not he, he's like, I'm going to school for an extra four years so that I can get a job that pays half as much. 
And I'm like, sounds like an excellent investment. <laughs> and I said, but will it make you happier? And he said, yeah, I really think it will. And so I said, go, do it. Um, my daughter grew up with a mother who did a sort of art. It's not visual art, but who made a living on her art. And I think that she's never questioned that she could have a career in art because it was always a possibility in her mind. Um, so I, I just had to know that it was possible. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons I like to come talk to people. It's possible. And not only that, but I think it's better now than it ever has been. Like, I really, I, I am happily still published with Trad, and I am about to go out on sub after you know, five years or whatever with nothing to Trad. But traditionally, Trad is traditionally published, traditional publishing houses. But I, uh, where was I going with this? Um, but the revolution that has happened since we first got published uh, in, self, in the self-publishing arena is insane. And the fact that there are so many ways to take advantage of it, both as publishing artwork, two-dimensional artwork, but also publishing um, books, is, is insane. Like This yes. is the best time to be a creative in terms of opportunities, which we, when we started out back in like 2007, 2008, just did not have. Like It just did not exist. So like... That aspect of the digital revolution, as pain in the ass as it is to constantly be buying, like filing DCMAs and things like that, like it's it's amazing. Like the the, the choices that I had to transition to, to doing more self publishing and things like that, I, I'm so grateful for. I'm, I'm beyond grateful for the ebook revolution. So like I do think that you guys are sitting pretty. Like you, you have a lot more options than we ever did. This is a golden age, and I say that knowing that. Traditional publishing is somewhat collapsing. <laughs> so I want to take a step into the more personal side of the business, right? So we can talk about what everybody sees on the outside, the steps to get success, or be successful, not get success, but same thing. What does the other side of that look like as professionals sort of functioning within your industries? What does that support look like? You were talking about your husband and like you being supportive of his changes and family. Like what sort of what sort of weight is that on personal lives and your own personal mental health, if you want to get into that, but like that is part of the business, is taking care of ourselves and leaning on our support systems. If you guys would like to talk a little bit about that side of it. I highly recommend a supportive father. Um, my husband just loves to watch me go off into space in the middle of talking and he'll kind of count seconds and see how long it takes me to come back. And he'll be like, and I'll suddenly come back to the conversation and be like, oh, sorry, I was working. And he thinks it's hilarious. I know a lot of people who would be like, you never listen to me. You're always wandering off. And he's like, no, that's just part of you. Um, I mean, as far as it's a very um, you know, dry resource way, a lot of authors have spouses who have health insurance. They work full time so that there's health insurance because independent health insurance is very expensive. Um, and then, you know, someone who can close a door on your office and say, I'll take care of the kids, the pets, the, the plumber, whatever, just go work. Um, it, it's so valuable to have that. I have no idea. Uh, uh, I am, uh, Maybe you have 12 kids. If you yes, want to talk, talk about it, you can talk about no, it. No, I'm not going to talk about lose, anything. So. so I am uh, chronically unmarried by choice. Um, and so I pay for my own health insurance, among other things, uh, and it is, it is not, it is, it's not bad, frankly. Um, it's about, was it, just under 500 a month. Um, 
and uh, I have multiple partners by choice, but they are not generally particularly supportive, or I guess by accident, really. But one of the one of them's very useful in terms of like marketing and stuff like that, uh, but not particularly interested in the, the business of writing. So what I have is a very large, very intimate support network of writer and artist friends. Um, some of them made at events like this. Many of them made early on in my career at places like Worldcon, a small science fiction and fantasy conventions that had writer tracks, that sort of thing. I have writer friends who are friends from before I was published, writer friends from the convention circuit. Those and I and art, I think artist friends, I probably speak to this as well, which is you need these people. Like, as supportive as your spouse or significant others can be, um, you need people who, who understand the ins and outs of the business, both the business side and the emotional side. You need water coolers. I attend conventions because of the water cooler. I love talking and meeting fans and stuff like that, but I also really need to talk to other authors in person. Like, also, that's how we protect ourselves. Those of us in traditional publishing, we have to be able to have conversations about contract terms and stuff, oh, even if we have ages still. We spill. We oh, yeah. spill on who's got like clause M, the morality clause, like who's giving what kind of advances. Uh, the traditional publishing hates this about us. But oh yes, it's because you can't imagine how many publishers are like, I'm. We just flat out we don't offer this to any author. Yeah, no, and no, then you nobody know, this gets is what they said. They're like they totally offered that. Yeah, exactly. Like six like months. McKellen's basket accounting. They're like, no, we give everyone gets basket yes. accounting, and then you'll meet like eight authors who's like, yeah, my agent got that. Doesn't have basket accounting. Like, you don't oh, want basket accounting. Uh, contract negotiations is a whole other panel. Yes. Um, all that <laughs> to say, uh, author friends are a huge part of it for me. Um, support networks, and then the other support network that I have in place now is a team of contract workers. And I'm a very great believer in uh, outsourcing to professionals, artists for cover art, etc. Um, I know, for example, that I could change the oil in my car if I wanted to, but frankly, I don't want to learn how to do that. I'd rather take my car to, to the, a mechanic, right? And I feel that way about other aspects of the book industry. So, as a self-published author, I have. A team, like I have an assistant, I have it's a cover. She's lovely. I adore her. <laughs> uh, if she leaves me, I will be wrecked. Uh, anyway, that's a whole other emotional bandwagon. But um, and that is the problem with contract workers, of course, is they, they do leave you, and then you have to find a new one. But um, yeah, so I have a whole like essentially a team in place now of people who I pay for their expertise and help me with uh, my self-published project. Uh, Developmental editor, copy editor, proof editors, etc. All of those those people are all people I hire, um, and that's the other thing that allows for my career and keeps me sane. So I wanted to ask you something. So your support, this was interesting. You you are publishing an A to Z. She actually posted to let everybody decide on this or this, this or this. Oh, she's talking about a little ABC, a little book ABC with book. illustrations on every page. So part of her support kind of comes from everybody, yeah. right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, I decided during the pandemic, everything was shut down and people were struggling and lonely and had lack of interaction. And I was delving into, I did a lot of traditional artwork and I had yet to really embrace digital. And so I wanted to push myself in the digital realm. And I thought, why not make this an interactive thing? And so I started an ABC book project 
and I would post two separate animals, both starting with the letter A, and then let my group of social media friends choose which one they preferred. And then I self-published a book based on their choices. So whatever one animal won, that was the capital letter, and then the lowercase letter would be the loser. <laughs> so that, and the, then, with on top of that, I now had a clientele who were invested in that book because they helped create it. And so that led to a nice business model because then they felt like responsible for that. But along with your question earlier, as an artist, one thing that I didn't really attribute much to was physical health. Mm. If you are illustrating or doing any kind of artwork or typing for a long amount of time, the physical toll it takes on your body can be dramatic. And so I would come home from doing my art and I'm doing this and all my muscles and my whole body were shocked. And so taking the time to build up my physical muscles makes me a better artist. And so just in the past little while, it was like, no, I've got to take care of my body so that I can still do what I love. And that goes along with mental health too. When we live in a world where, especially as an artist or like the same tale, reviews. I mean, you're reading stuff or seeing stars. Suddenly there's a, <laughs> a physical, like, oh, here, this is how much we value you. <laughs> That's not always fun in a world of Instagram with all these likes. You can easily attribute that to your self-esteem. So guarding yourself against that and saying, what is it really about? What, what's your why? Why do I do what I do? And knowing that is so important. So I'm wondering, oh, yes. I, I should add, I do do that as well. I didn't talk about my group, but my group is very, I have a Facebook group that's extremely vibrant and it's sort of like got its whole life of its own now. And, um, but one of the things I will do is just pop in there and ask questions of the group occasionally or hold the group or ask them like what they're reading or whatever. And I, I am genuinely curious about what's going on. And I will genuinely like, if I'm doing a poll, like that will absolutely influence mm -hmm. like the decision, like which character should I write next or whatever. Like it's gonna go on a spreadsheet. Exactly. <laughs> it will have its own color. But all, but more importantly, um, I only poll for the things I want to write. Like let's be very clear. Like I have three ideas. Like those are the three that I'm not gonna like poll for a character that I'm not interested in writing because that's obviously what we want the wins. Mm. So <laughs> so I wanted. We have about ten minutes. Um, I wanted to open it up to you guys. So does anyone have any questions? Yes, right here. I'm curious for the lady in the familiar about the artist. Um, if I, I guess that coming up with your discussion is like, is there something I'm missing if, if I'm selling my art and for word of mouth, is it popular fiction on it, getting kind of, is there something I'm missing besides selling my art? Is there any kind of copyright aspects that I should be doing that I consider to make up my name on? Are there other things, put, put aside the money I make, or the IRS part, put that in there, other, I guess, copyrighted other things that I should be aware of that I'm not doing? There's two lovely ladies. Oh, I was gonna. This is like a slam. My like pistol on the table. You have to have a website. You have to have a website. Okay. So we got a website. That website should be. Wait, 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 wait. That website should be under your name. You need name recognition. Don't put it under a series name. Don't put it under a cute little steampunk bullshit name. It's your name. You want people to recognize 
Your name. Okay. Yeah. That's the second also, one. Your copyright will last longer under your name. Thanks. Yes. And the, the okay. next thing is newsletter. Do a newsletter. <laughs> Please do a newsletter. Okay. okay. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I don't whatever. She feels strongly about this. So strongly. She's like, like the emerald flame. Yeah, right? The like flame. Yeah. Like the oh, one. I'm sure whatever comes so, up. Thank you. The one thing I regret notes. more than anything is not starting a newsletter sooner. Okay. Like those are your eyeballs. Those are the only eyeballs you own. The ones that are on your but website. But those are legal ramifications of other things. There, there, there are. Infection yes. And, uh, yes. Non fungible tokens like we talked about that stuff's being newsletter. Because yeah. the copyright is the moment your thing is posted, published, drawn, or written. The copyright this exists. This is an art piece that is sold to a, a one of one. Art piece uh, soul that will never be reproduced and is now in the possession of someone else. So, are you talking traditional art or digital? Traditional, three dimensional, hardcore, you know. Then they own that. Once right. you accept that. Okay. Then so, there's, there's nothing beyond that. Once you make the sale, you hand it over perhaps yep. with a. a, a, yep. a uh, they can do whatever yep. they want. Can they turn it into an NFT of their own? Can I do that before selling it? Turn it into an NFT. A physical? No, because the whole point of the definition of NFT is non-physical. Non-physical. Yeah. So it's a digital asset. You cannot turn a non-digital asset into a digital asset. You can take a photograph. Of yeah, that's, art, that's all it is. But right. a photograph is yeah. also yeah. yeah. or, yeah. or there are other things so, you can do with them. And, it, but yeah, it's a digital thing. And it also depends on what that contract would be between you and that person. You know, depending on. I'm selling prints at a con. They could take it and they could scan it and sell it, sure. But I think that's the thing. I technically own that. They could do that and it happens all the time as artists. And that's the other part of the business aspect is that's happening way more frequently What's than that. What's that? that uh, people stealing your art. And but what selling. is sold to them? You just said that that you lose if it's, all. If it's a trick, right. go ahead. All I, I, I've bought an original art before, and as part of the purchase, the artist has, has made me sign the contract, yes. saying that I have no right to reproduce and create you know, oh, the original art. Digital art. Yeah. Yeah. You own that physical piece of art. Thank you. But yeah. this so, is really what I was yeah. talking about, that it is so much easier to copyright and protect your writing. Sure than it sure. is your art. It is a big challenge and like I said, I, I know almost, this is how much I know about NFTs, but what I know is that it's going to, to revolutionize the art copyright industry and not for the better. I think it's gonna be a major challenge. I think that a lot of lawyers are gonna make money off of NFTs, defending NFTs and, whole legal, and, and whole thing, artists. There's a whole future. legal thing going on in terms of the difference between trademark or IP, intellectual property, mm -hmm. and copyright. Um, and that is something that you need to buy a book and read about. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, because they are very different, issue. they're legally different, so, okay. um, and you're not wrong to be confused. I'm yeah. sure these ladies have talked to many professionals, and I would advise the same. I yes. have a question here, and then our final question is going to be here. So you... So one of my questions, my question is that when you're writing something that is historically based, and then like you bring in Queen Victoria in your stories and stuff, what is the limit to that you can do that fictionally without pissing somebody off with their name recognition, even if they're someone who's no longer living. If, say, if it was, you know, if you wanted to bring in, like, you know, like in the, you know, we have uh, Van Gogh in, in some of the 
Doctor Who. We have, mm. you know, Charlie Chaplin pop in, you know, who had definitely has a family who's definitely very active in his <laughs> in his branding. You know, how how what is the? Uh, you want an honest answer? Mm-hmm. If the family is still alive and litigious, I wouldn't touch it with a ten foot pole. So no Conan Doyle or anything like that. Yeah. I prefer not to use act like I'll use like what I will call super celebrity uh, historical mm-hmm. figures like Queen Victoria because there comes a point where they're like zeitgeist rather than individuals mm-hmm. and it's not like the Windsor family is going to assume you for using Queen Victoria <laughs> I mean that seems ridiculous uh, but I have like not used historical aristocratic names uh, which I would have liked to have used because the family is still alive mm-hmm. in the British aristocracy so I just change the name a little bit and make it sillier fun but I write comedy I can do get it. creative with uh, that. Uh, do not do not put a celebrity, like currently alive yeah. celebrities of any kind, ever, in yeah. your work. It's just a, an area where, like, you're asking. And then right here, darling. Uh, yes, actually, I have a question because my husband is an uh, author, or he wants to publish, and uh, I was just wondering what advice you could give him. Oh. Like, uh, let me just ask started. a question back. Has he finished a book? Uh, he's working on over now. Okay, so this is the first advice to me, or from me, to me, <laughs> from me. Finish a book because there's a mental barrier in everyone's head that wants to write a book. That it's this big, they, it's the marathon of your brain. But once you finish one, like it breaks that barrier down, and it's not so hard to think that you could finish two, you could finish three, you could finish ten, and you could finish twenty. Um, and the fact of the matter is, you probably will have to write several books before you have something not only just just good enough to be accepted by traditional publishers, but that you feel good enough to put out on your own. I write though both of those bars should be very high, and it will probably take you through practice novels to get there, and that's okay. I, I agree. Uh, the one piece of advice I give, which I can guarantee you most writers in this audience are going to completely ignore, is uh, you're not allowed to edit what you are currently writing. Uh, you can only keep writing. You can edit perhaps what you wrote the day before, if you're somebody who's writing daily or regularly. Uh, but I know too many writers who are perfectionists who get into a spiral of just re-editing that first chapter or those first three chapters. And they see everyone twenty-eight percent. Um, you got to stop. You have to finish it. The point is the end goal. If you wish to be an author, and I make a distinct distinction between writers and authors, but if you wish to be an author, somebody who's published somewhere or another, you do have to finish the thing. Um, and for me, that was getting outside of my perfectionist tendencies. And for me, that was simply not allowing myself to edit until I was done. Now, what about when you are done? Then I hate myself because there's a whole bunch of like TK, what I call TK. So the letter T and K don't exist together in the English language. So I put a TK. If TK means I have to go research something, I gotta go like check the consistency of something. I decided to change so somebody's you don't name. Stop on the way to I do if it's like very important to the plot. So I have to know how a syringe works in order for a plot point to happen. But if it's like set dressing or I need to describe something, I. Everything, yeah. It, the whole point is to get the story out on the page as quickly as possible. And that's just because for me, the first draft is the hardest thing to do. I know for some people, the editing is the hardest, especially pants writers or discovery writers. They have a hard time with the editing process. I just need to get it out as quickly as possible. So I will, I construct many, many tricks to like coax myself into finishing the thing because that's, once the thing is finished, it's just like, okay, it's done. Right. Well, I know way more authors who have trouble getting past chapter one because of that than authors who are done 
who are struggling with in the mire of that. I agree. So yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. And and seriously, it is a, a hole that is, that so many writers fall into. I know so many writers who are like, I've got three chapters. They're amazing. And I'm like, I'm sure they are, but it doesn't matter if you can't so finish it. In conclusion, because we're at time, oh, okay. one last statement. And tell us where we're at in our vendor spaces or if you're going to be somewhere next. Uh, my other piece of advice to new authors is basically you're probably going to lose your first couple of chapters. A lot of authors are working out stuff in those first two chapters that the readers don't want. Uh, so just relax. It's okay. You're going to have to let it go. Sometimes you have to let go a whole book. I just trunked an entire book and I know I could have sold it, but I was like, oh, it's not good enough. So, um, but almost every debut author at least needs to lose the first couple of chapters of their book, and that's fine. Let them go. They're all good. So stop reworking them. You're going to have to cut them out anyway. <laughs> uh, you can find me mostly at panels. Uh, you catch me walking around if you want me to sign something. I'm happy. Absolutely delighted to do that. I don't have a table or anything. Sunday morning, she's going to be at the uh, pronounced one, the coffee. Oh, coffee clutch. Thank yes. You. you can come to a coffee clutch, and I'll be happy to sign anything there. I walk around with a pen all the time. Yeah, we're in the same coffee clutch. Yep. Are you there? No. Yeah. No. Just you are invited by Mouse. Yes. And, and, and the red art. The red art. All right, Miss Ashley. Um, I would say if you're a serious artist and you're looking to get into any kind of children's book publishing, master studies are your friend. If you don't know what master study is, that means looking at artists that you really like and reproducing their work for yourself just so you understand the process. Color palette, sketching, so you really get it and then developing your own style. I think that's one of the biggest things that really can help jumpstart you into understanding who you are as an artist. Um, April Lynn and I have a table uh, just outside the vendor hall. So they're in the vendor best. foyer at our group and VIP tables there. And Ms. any oh, final I'm just going to add to that because particularly you had a, a legal question. In case you are concerned, there is absolutely nothing unethical with copying another author's work for practice. This is centuries-old practice. You just then do not display it, sell it, anything like that. It is for practice. But you are totally welcome to copy any author's work for practice. I also have a craft book. If you're interested in narratives, oh, shill, I forgot that part. Uh, it's called The Heroine's Journey. It's a rebuttal to Campbell's Hero's Journey because most people don't realize there's an alternative narrative pattern, and it does have a how-to-write-it section. Um, and then I have a bunch of bookmarks down there, including all of my books and everything. Thank you so much, ladies. We will be looking forward to speaking with you more as we proceed through the treacherous Wild West content. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening.